We are proposing a budget that will shrink the bloated federal bureaucracy, and I mean bloated, while protecting our national security. On Thursday, the White House released a budget proposal with cuts that could represent the widest reductions in federal programs since right after World War II. This week, we're taking a look at the details of Trump's budget proposal, how real these drastic proposed cuts may become, and the political consequences of it all. This is Can He Do That, a podcast where we explore the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm your host, Allison Michaels, and this week, to help us sort out the budget, we've got our congressional reporter, Kelsey Snell, here. Thanks for coming on the show, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. Okay, can you just tell us what we've seen in the White House skinny budget, what we're looking at? So, thing to remember about this is that it is really hard to put together a budget for the first time. And the Trump administration hasn't been around that long. So what they put out is they're calling it a skinny budget. It's kind of a pared-down version of what they'd like to see for congressional spending. It is a wish list. It's a blueprint, and it kind of lays out what Trump's vision for America as an American federal government would be. That means cutting back the EPA. That means cutting back domestic spending on, you know, just about everything, really, and expanding military spending. They're calling it the America First budget, which means, you know, it's the same thing that he's been talking about on the campaign trail, which is big military spending and putting America's interests abroad first. Tell me understand a little bit better how we even got to this point in the budget process. I spoke with Maya McGinnis. So Maya is the president of an organization called the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. It's essentially a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, and it's full of budget experts who help the public and lawmakers kind of make sense of all of this. And that's what she's here to help us with today. The first step of the budget process is the president offering his budget every year. That is generally supposed to happen in the beginning of February. But there's kind of a a flexibility for all new presidents because they really can't get into office and have a full thought out budget when they've barely gotten the new director of OMB into place, as is the case right now. So Regularly, new presidents give skinny budgets, which means they are smaller than usual. So in the past, the budgets have looked at all of the different parts of the budget and had projections into the future, but they haven't been very detailed in the policies that have been included in them. The budget is going to be very focused on just the discretionary portion of the budget. And let me explain that with the budget, there are two pieces. Discretionary, which is the spending that goes through the appropriations process every year. That's defense, international affairs, the environment, energy, education, worker retraining, a lot of different parts of the budget um, that are what people generally think of as government. And then the other part of the budget, which is mandatory spending, which is spending that doesn't get appropriated every year. It's on automatic pilot, basically. The laws are set, and if you qualify, you get something. Um, Social Security, Medicare. So after the president presents his skinny budget, which is legal or a budget yearly, which is legally mandated that the executive branch do so, then where does it go from there? What are the next steps for the budget process? The next thing that happens is that Congress picks up the creating the budget piece and they can start with the president's budget or they can ignore the budget completely. This often depends on um, whether Congress and the White House are the same parties or different parties. Usually if you have one party in the White House and a different party in Congress, they'll declare the budget, quote unquote, dead on arrival. They'll barely open it. They'll start with their own priorities. So what happens next is both the House Budget Committee and the Senate Budget Committee come up with their own budget resolutions. And that's what they will be working through in the coming weeks and months. I would also point out something that I find startling. Very often, we don't have a budget in this country, which I think as far as 
reflecting the challenges and, and in some ways the brokenness of our current budget process. There's very little that illustrates that more than the fact that how can we run a country without a budget? Mm -hmm. And yet we do regularly. And this is the biggest economy in the world. So many times what happens is Congress fails to pass a budget. It gets stuck either in, back to that process, it's going through the House and Senate budget committees. Then both bodies have to pass the budget resolution separately. Then they have to reconcile the differences and come up with one budget resolution overall. Oftentimes that whole process doesn't happen. And the budget gets stuck somewhere along the lines. So we move forward without a budget. So what does it mean if we're operating our government without a budget? Does that mean we can spend whatever we want? Well, if you look at our debt right now, which is the highest as a share of the economy that it's been since World War II, and yet we're not coming out of a world war, and we're not in an economic crisis. So there's really no justification for that. Um, but the fact that our debt is so high kind of reflects the fact they they do seem to spend whatever they want, and very often they don't pay for it. But without the budget resolution, there's much less of a roadmap, a plan for where we're headed. So it then becomes more of a process of play, uh, filling out the laws, passing laws that aren't consistent with any specific budget. So at certain points throughout the year, we hit uh, stages, I guess, where we need to have a budget resolution of some kind. So April 29th, I think, is the first date that we're going to hit where we have to come up with essentially what's called a continuing resolution. Is that right? Can you explain more about that? You can't run the government if you can't, if you haven't funded the government. So one of the ways we get around that is we often pass things called continuing resolutions where we just agree to continue funding the government. That's what we have in place right now. It does end at the end of April, and we're going to have to go back. And even as we're struggling to pass the budget for next year, that will start on October 1st, we will still be trying to figure out how to fund the government for the rest of this year with that, when that continuing resolution expires. Probably we'll pass another continuing resolution through the end of the fiscal year. What's the harm in doing that, in continuing to pass continuing resolutions? I think the real harm comes from that we're not doing what budgeting is. Budgeting is incredibly important. Um, and I don't like to oversimplify the government and compare it to households too much. But we do know that you have to go back and revisit how you're spending and how you're raising money. Do you want to spend more money on the environment or energy or both. And skipping that process entirely really is just an abdication of the, the responsibility that um, lawmakers have. To somebody who doesn't necessarily deeply understand the budget, doesn't really know what the top headlines are to know where to care, what are the things that people should be most concerned about? What are the most important pieces of this process that people should pay attention to and people, people should try to understand better? Yeah, it's a great question. So let's take a step back from how the budget process does work or even how it should work and think more broadly about what a budget is. A budget is how we lay out the nation's priorities. And I think there's so much fighting, so much polarization, so much partisanship. But if we started with that question of what are our nation's priorities, I bet we'd have a lot of agreement. You know, it's national security. It's a thriving economy that's growing and the gains are spread broadly. It's a lot of indicators of health and well-being from our physical health to uh, literacy and the cleanliness of our air and our water. There are all sorts of things that I think people would nod their heads and think we all want to do that. Then the next question is, how do we achieve those? How, what policies are best to achieve those? There are going to be differences there. But I wish we had a budget that said, what are our national priorities? And then how are we going to put them into policies? And how are we going to pay for them? So I think the real question is, on a fiscal level, what should we be doing? How should we be spending our money? And if so, how are we going to pay for it? And if we're not paying for it, which we're not on a regular <laughs> basis, we're borrowing hundreds of billions of dollars a year, how do you look at your kids and say, this bill's going to you? I'm sorry, I didn't want to pay for our spending, so we're passing this bill off to our children. 
So, Kelsey, I just want to understand the process here a little bit better. If Congress disapproves of this budget and calls the budget essentially dead on arrival, as some are saying, and then then they come up with their own plan at that point. So do they go back to the president and negotiate with him? How does that process work? No, they don't even have to negotiate. So what they have to do is they need to pass a budget that sets up the top line spending number. So the exact number that the federal government can spend all together. Then they can kind of just pass their own budget when it comes to all the rest of the spending priorities. The thing is, is none of that actually prevents them from changing their minds later. They don't have to follow a budget. They write down ideas, priorities, and then they turn to a whole different group of people called the Appropriations Committee and tell them, okay, now you figure out how we're actually going to spend money. And that won't happen for months. So can you go into a little bit more detail about the numbers here? So where are we specifically seeing cuts and where are we seeing increased spending? Sure. So we have a breakdown of the biggest winners and losers on the website. So anybody listening can go and find that. Um, The biggest losers we have you know, we see big cuts to the Labor Department. Uh, it's a 21% cut. We're seeing a 21% cut to agriculture, 29% to the State Department, and 31 to the EPA. Those are really big numbers. To cut a third of the Environmental Protection Agency is something we've never seen before. But, you know, other places are getting big windfalls, like defense is getting a 10% increase, not enough for some defense hawks like Senator John McCain or Senator Lindsey Graham, who'd like to see bigger spending. And Homeland Security is getting about 7% more. And Veterans Affairs would get about 6%. But, you know, that isn't all broken down the way that it's not just a big pot of money to be given to defense. Part of that money is about um, $3 billion for border security alone. So they're really doubling down in the Trump administration on this idea of building the wall and doing border enforcement. You mentioned that uh, Trump is investing all this money in the military and in the the Defense Department. He's an isolationist president. He doesn't really want to get involved abroad and America first, and he's cutting the State Department. But so what what service does it do to increase military spending? To what end does that meet in, in regards to his sort of America first attitude? Well, the idea is that if the military is ready, it's going to be a lot harder to attack us. So people would be it makes it creates a posture of strength. Um, And I think that there are a lot of people who say that part of that posture of strength is he, you know, he says he wants to beat back ISIS. And that is one of his least, you know, that's a protectionist thing in terms of making sure that there are no domestic attacks. Um, But it's also in keeping with his concerns about, you know, global ambitions of terror groups. So that would cost money. Um, It would cost (laughs) money to have if you if he wants to commit troops in the future to helping the fight against ISIS, that, that this would go towards that goal. Right. So but but like you mentioned before, certain senators say, hey, this isn't enough. Can you compare it to numbers in the past, what we've seen in terms of defense spending from from previous budgets? Sure. This is about uh, three percent more than what President Obama um, had pitched. And it's you know, it's a large increase for a peacetime president. Um, We've seen larger increases when during times of war. But for a peacetime president, this is a fairly large increase. So other than the wall, you spoke a little bit about the cuts to EPA. What are some ways that those things play? play out, would potentially play out where they actually passed in the lives of real people. So the question then comes down to how does Congress interpret those requests for cuts? So it kind of depends on whether or not they feel like they can divide those cuts up evenly among 
different programs, or if they say, I want to ax this entire part of the agency. And that's kind of up to Congress. And what will happen next is each agency is going to send somebody up to Capitol Hill for a hearing and say, please don't take this away from me. Please leave my budget intact. Please give my give all the money to this science issue or to this health issue. And agencies are basically going to go up and plead their case and hope that Congress doesn't listen to Trump. So if, for example, an entire, let's say, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is which I know is something that they've proposed cutting, what does that look like for, for the American people if they cut if they cut that? Well, for something like um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, you'll see places like PBS probably have to find money elsewhere. They won't be able to rely on their portion of their budget that comes from the federal government. But for something like the State Department, they don't really have that option of going out and saying, hey, I'd like to crowdfund, right. you know, I don't, you can't really crowdfund an embassy. So <laughs> for them, they actually just have to make program cuts. So you mentioned this briefly before, but spend increased spending for border security, including the wall. So Democrats have said that if there's funding for a wall in the budget, they're just going to insist on a government shutdown. They will not in any way kind of entertain that idea. How likely do you think a shutdown is based on this and based on what we're seeing in the budget. What does that whole process look like? Democrats are saying if Republicans try to put in money to build the wall, they just won't vote for the spending bill at all. I haven't gotten huge commitments from every Democrat on this, but you would imagine that this is a hard question for people who are up for election in 2018. For more on how Democrats feel about the budget and whether or not they're really willing to shut down the government, we spoke to Senator Chris Van Hollen. He's a Democrat from Maryland, and he runs the committee that's in charge of getting Democrats reelected to the Senate in 2018. I will say that it is a betrayal of many of the promises uh, that Donald Trump made on the campaign trail. He said he was going to remember the forgotten people. I can tell you people who supported him are being left behind. It has very dramatic cuts uh, to rural areas. Uh, rural transportation is a cut. Uh, rural economic development is cut. Uh, the Agriculture Department budget is cut. And, you know, I'm, I'm now a member of the Ag Committee. I'm one of the first Maryland senators since 1922 to serve on the Ag Committee. I'm looking forward to working with our farmers. But people in rural communities really take it on the chin uh, in this budget. I think people, when they hear a number like you know, in the billions and millions, it's hard to understand how those things relate. Is there another program that you can think of that kind of you where you saw a cut in the budget and you can translate that to an actual thing that you can see disappearing somewhere else? Oh, sure. Uh, people who rely on some help uh, for their home heating oil uh, in the winter, the LIHEAP program, it has very deep cuts to that. These are these are people who literally can't pay their heating bills. We've heard these horrible stories about people whose heating supply is turned off. Uh, the whole idea of the LIHEAP program is to provide those struggling people with a little bit of uh, help. Frankly, people who, you know, Donald Trump, when he was on the campaign trail, uh, said he, these are working people, but they don't have enough uh, to make ends meet and pay every bill on time. So it's it's that kind of uh, thing. So another area that I uh, saw some Republicans pushing back against were cuts to the EPA, particularly on um, the Great Lakes. So we saw Senator Portman said that he didn't find that acceptable. Why do you think something like that is so bipartisan in the way that it strikes people as scary? Well, because um, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or something else. You want to breathe clean air. Uh, you want to make sure your kids can breathe clean air. And you want to make sure that your water <laughs> isn't dirty 
and contaminated. Uh, and this budget wipes out the program uh, for the Great Lakes. It wipes out the program for the Chesapeake Bay, which has gotten a lot of bipartisan support. And when you think of the Bay uh, or the Great Lakes, in addition to being an incredible natural resource and natural treasures, uh, the livelihood of lots of people depends on a clean uh, Chesapeake Bay. Uh, So if you pollute the bay and make this an open season for polluters, you're not only going to dirty the air, you're going to have very bad health effects, but you're also going to have a really negative economic uh, impact as well. Trump has talked for a very long time about draining the swamp and about there being too many bureaucrats in Washington. And there's some feeling that this budget is in keeping with that promise. Why is it ineffective, in your opinion, to kind of address that problem by making huge cuts to federal spending? Well, let's take another example, Um, investments in biomedical research. You know, the Congress on a bipartisan basis just passed something called the Cures Act, where we decided as a country to increase our investment uh, in places like NIH, the National Institutes of Health, to uh, find more treatments and cures to diseases that impact every American family, Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, many other diseases. And it took you guys a long time to write that bill and to make the decisions about that funding, right? It did. And part of that funding was to increase the investment, our national investment, in finding these cures and treatments. And yet here comes the Trump administration dramatically cutting uh, that, that budget. And that will mean fewer breakthroughs in treatments and cures to diseases that help every American family, to, that, that face every American family. And, and in addition, it hurts our economy because we need that innovation in our economy to stay ahead of our international competitors. We are losing scientists, and this is a very anti-science administration. They dramatically cut other parts of the budget in the science area. But we're going to lose scientists uh, to, to China and other places, and they're going to go to work making products, competing with us. And so we lose on both ends. We lose because we don't have more cures and treatments, and we lose because we don't have the economic benefit of that innovation. So you wear a lot of hats here in the Senate, um, agriculture, budget, but you also cover politics because you are in charge of making sure that more Democrats get reelected or and get elected in 2018. And I wonder how does this play into that? Well, I think what this will do is expose uh, the big gap between what candidate Trump said um, and what President Trump is actually doing. And I think when people focus on that, they'll realize that a lot of the populist talk on the campaign trail was really a fake populism. And let's just take some of example. I mentioned the rural cuts. I can mention close to home in Maryland, the um, Appalachian Regional Commission. This is a economic development fund that helps people in rural areas, Western Maryland, people who voted strongly for Donald Trump, wiped out, totally wiped out, many of the other economic development programs in rural areas. So infrastructure, I mean, here he's been talking, I mean, it was the one issue he actually mentioned election night, modernize our infrastructure. We know we have huge needs. Cut. He cut the infrastructure budget uh, significantly here. So I think when people will begin to zero on the fact that this was a, you know, sort of a populist act, uh, and this budget's a betrayal of those promises, that'll that'll get their attention. So do you think that, well, I guess the fundamental question is, can he actually do any of this? Can any of this pass in Congress? Well, for example, uh, the veterans... uh, programs. Um, He invests in those. That's a good investment. Uh, There's always been strong bipartisan support uh, for veterans. Uh, I think that that will get unanimous support. 
uh, some of the Homeland Security budget will get uh, strong support. But things like uh, the wall, I remember him going all over the country saying Mexico's uh, going to pay for the wall. You know, most experts think that the wall is just a waste of money because it won't actually provide security. Everyone wants a secure border. That's not the issue. The issue is how do you do it? And uh, he's, you know, now diverting resources away from our schools. Right. By the way, very deep cuts to education. Right. Uh to do something that he said he was going to get the Mexicans to pay for. I thought he was this great negotiator. Apparently not. Well, more on the wall there. Part of what he wants to do, part of this budget, was a supplemental request for defense. And that includes about one and a half to one and three quarters billion dollars for to get started on the wall. Um, but what they want to do is they want to actually attach that to the short-term spending bill that you guys need to pass by the end of April. Um, the way I understand it, Republicans think that doing that will force Democrats, particularly some of your more sensitive Democrats in the upcoming election, to have to vote for the wall in order to not appear to be voting against money for the troops and money for other things. How do you guys plan to negotiate that very difficult line? Well, first, I think uh, when you look at the supplemental budget, it should reflect the balance in the rest of the budget. So this supplemental budget is really an attempt to dramatically boost defense spending um, without also increasing our investment in our kids' education, in biomedical research. Uh, we've always taken the position that we need a balanced approach uh, to these investments because a strong country requires not just a strong military, but a good economy. But voting against it could potentially put you in a situation, as we know, because um, Senator Schumer put out the letter earlier this week that it's, you know, if you guys do not vote for the supplemental as part of this short-term spending bill, we're talking about a shutdown. Is that a real threat or is that something that you guys are still negotiating? You know, we hear a lot about efforts to do things like defund uh, Planned Parenthood or, you know, defund important uh, environmental protections and give polluters, you know, license to pollute or things that you know hurt working uh, Americans. Those kind of things should be dealt with outside the budget process. People should debate them on their own merits. So it would be a big mistake for Republicans to abuse the budget process uh, in the way they're talking about doing. So it sounds like you're not ready to commit on the shutdown issue. Well, I, I think the issue for Republicans is whether they're going to take such an extremist approach that they're essentially inviting. Uh, and inviting that kind of response. And I hope they won't, uh, because at least in the Senate on the Appropriations Committee, there's been a relatively bipartisan approach. So I, uh, and that's why we were able to get budget agreements right. in the last two years. If the Trump administration is going to, you know, throw out those bipartisan agreements, then, you know, they're the ones that are going to have to be held accountable for the consequences. So that interview you just heard between Kelsey and Senator Van Hollen, we actually recorded on our Facebook Live. So you can go ahead and head over to our Washington Post Facebook page and watch the full thing there. It's been edited here for content and clarity, but the whole thing is up on our Facebook page. In the meantime, Kelsey, let's get back to talking about the budget. So Senator Van Hollen there lays out concerns of the Democrats. Are they real concerns? And, and how how is this different from how Republicans are reacting? Well, they are real concerns because Republicans on the Hill are going to get cues on how to spend money from the president. So we like to say that budgets are wish lists and blueprints, but they also tell people about what is really in the idea in the mind of the party in charge. So 
you know, it, it's a guidance document. And so he has every right to be concerned that Republicans will follow big parts of that. But I will say, I've been talking to Republicans in Congress about how they feel about this. And it's not entirely certain to me that they agree with everything in this budget. There's been some lukewarm response. You mean Republicans and Democrats? Yeah, well, Republicans, I mean, really, in general, they've been giving some fairly lukewarm responses. They say that they're glad that Trump wants to save money, that they're glad he wants to make cuts. But they're not really embracing any specific cuts directly. If anything, I've seen statements from some Republicans raising an eyebrow or saying, hey, you can't cut this program. That's important to me. So, yes, Democrats have every reason to be worried about the spending process. And there will be a big fight, but it might not be about the specific things that are in this budget. In this budget, a major theme really seems to be kind of this idea of taking power away from the federal government and giving it back to the states, essentially, which is a core part of of standard Republican ideology. But how much does the budget fall in line with the ideology we see in Congress right now? Is this budget matching up with Paul Ryan's vision and Mitch McConnell's vision? It is to an extent. It, it does in the in the sense that, it you're right, it sticks to this idea of giving more control back to the states. But if you talk to people in Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike, say you cannot solve the problems, the long-term fiscal problems of the country by cutting discretionary spending, which is the only thing that you can cut in the budget. They say the only way to actually solve the long-term debt and deficit problem is to go and make changes to programs like Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. And that's not in this budget at all. So Trump's chief strategist, Steve Bannon, he's said before that Trump will lead a, quote, deconstruction of the administrative state. This is a phrase we've heard a bunch. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that means and how this budget fits into that agenda? Yeah. So they also say they want to move, you know, the government away from Washington, have it spread out across the country. Um, They find some friends in that in uh, Jason Chaffetz, who's a congressman from Utah, uh, who wants to make sure that the federal government is more spread out. It's part of the whole draining the swamp idea. Mm -hmm. Um, This budget would do some of that um, by just merely saying you don't have enough money to have programs or to hire people. And cuts of this magnitude mean that you will have to fire people. In order to comply with this, people will lose their jobs. Um, and so that, you know, that right there cuts, cuts down on the administrative state that Bannon is so worried about. Um, but it also leaves people unemployed. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the political consequences of these of these cuts, specifically for Trump. Is this something that Trump's voters want to see? Are they paying attention to the nuance of a budget? Um, You know, is it reflective of just him wanting to disrupt, be the quote unquote disruptor in chief? How how does it how does it meet his base? Well, budgets are totally Trump's feed. So because they are campaign documents, essentially, like they it's a great opportunity for him to say that he's draining the swamp and he's making big cuts without ever actually having to follow through on that. So it's People will remember that he put out a budget that cut X, Y, Z. So people will remember that he put out a budget that cut the Labor Department. Or they'll remember that he he's the president who wanted to cut the EPA. So if you're a person who doesn't believe in climate change, you'll say, oh, this is my president. This is what he did. But that probably won't get enacted. We even saw Senator Marco Rubio say yesterday, the president writes budgets, but we do the spending here in Congress. So, you know, it's great. It's a messaging document. He wins in that regard and then doesn't have to pay the consequences of, you know, 
whether or not it actually happens. Yeah, but does he win? Because, you know, he's the I alone can fix it president. And he's like, whatever I say is going to go. Sure. But uh, if Congress doesn't follow through, then he can blame it on Congress. Yeah. So it, it's a perfect situation to be in. So he gets to promise something. He doesn't have to follow, follow through on it. And he has someone to blame if it doesn't work. So I ask you the final question here. Can Trump make such drastic cuts to the budget? Will they actually pass? Can he do this? The exact answer is no. This budget is not ever going to pass in Congress, but he can probably get some of these ideas through. So it's one of the things where you're going to have to watch closely and kind of make sure that you, if there's something you care about in the federal budget, keep an eye on it and um, make sure that you see where it goes from here. Great. And you guys can read the budget on WashingtonPost.com. Thank you so much for being here, Kelsey. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You guys can follow Kelsey Snell on Twitter at Kelsey, K-E-L-S-E-Y underscore Snell, S-N-E-L-L. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. So we have a lot of loyal listeners on the show who listen every week, but we have perhaps the most loyal listener in my dad, and it is his birthday tomorrow, so I just wanted to go ahead and give him a shout out. Happy birthday, dad. Have a great one. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please continue to send us your great ideas for episodes. It's been so helpful in helping us figure out what to cover and helping us know what you guys want to hear. What we want to hear are some five-star reviews on iTunes. So if you guys can go ahead and give us a review, I know you like it. Uh, You've told us so. So please continue to review us there. It goes a long way. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the amazing Carol Alderman, with special help this week from Bridget Reed Morosky. Rachel Orr is our design director, and our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio. 